Intensely Inquisitive, the podcast that searches for answers to life's big and not-so-big questions from the people qualified to give them with your host, Orion Kelly. Hi, and thanks for taking the time to listen to Intensely Inquisitive. I'm Orion Kelly. At the core of this podcast is a desire to understand things on a deeper level, to know more and to ask why. My purpose is to empower people with knowledge, education and growth opportunities through open, honest and inquisitive conversations. In this episode, we explore the topic of pregnancy and newborns and ask the question, how has pregnancy and raising babies changed in the modern world? My guest is my wife, Renee. Renee featured in the debut episode of Intensely Inquisitive, where we explored the taboo topic of miscarriage. And it's still the most listened to episode, no doubt, due to her courageously sharing personal experiences of miscarriage, including an ectopic pregnancy that almost killed her. This time round, I'm delighted to say we have much happier things to talk about, though this episode will probably still make you cry. Okay, you've been warned. Renee, thanks for joining me. No worries. Thanks for having me again. That didn't sound as uh, sincere as I thought. <laughs> uh, okay. It's okay. Here we go again. He's making me do a podcast. <laughs> That's not true. I'm here on my own will. Because the only podcast that people listen to are you and them. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. Speaking of that, before we get on to talking about pregnancy and babies in the, in the modern world, I just want to touch on the miscarriage podcast, which obviously you were the the star of you featured and I interviewed you about uh, mis- multiple miscarriages we both experienced. Obviously, when you listen to these things, you can get different reactions, not only from people, but from yourself. So when you, you obviously did the experience and, you know, parts it kind of you're emotional and parts you're really, you know, passionate about telling people about how to live their life from what you're experienced. But what was it like listening to the episode uh, and did it have an effect on you? Definitely. I think listening to it was almost like reliving the experience again. Um, And I think the experience of talking openly about such a traumatic um, time in our lives was really cathartic and therapeutic for me. In fact, I think I grew further from doing that experience and it led to so many more conversations as well. Um, But if you're talking purely just listening to it, so for instance, I listened to it when I was driving my car at one stage and Um, I actually just found myself crying again, which I don't think is a bad thing. I think it was just another way of reliving the moment, but um, also processing it a bit further. Absolutely, I agree. And and I think you can tell me more than I can tell you, but I think it's a common reaction from most people who have listened to the episode on miscarriage, maybe more than other episodes, um, that they all got emotional for one reason or another. Did you find reactions and did you find responses you got from people some you might know some you might not know did you find that surprising or what kind of responses did you did you get from the episode I think the all of the reactions were always very positive or very emotional that I and they weren't always people that I knew or they weren't people that I thought I was actually that close to or would have listened to the podcast in the first place it was quite interesting to hear different people's perspectives on on what they got out of the podcast and also how they reflected after hearing it. Uh, one really strange example was I was in my workplace and I had um, somebody who I worked with come up to me and just start talking to me about the podcast and I didn't actually know that person and they knew such an intimate detail of my life and it wasn't strange. It was more that they shared with me that they'd had multiple miscarriages and it was kind of like a me too moment and I think there was a lot of those moments and there still continues to be where we'll be contacted um, via Facebook or we'll just see someone in, in randomly in the street and they'll start mentioning it to us and we might not actually have much of a social connection to them but some somebody that we do have a connection with knows them and therefore they've heard it and so it just keeps snowballing which I think is great that's that's why we had the conversation in the first place is so that people start talking more openly about it it is quite painful though reliving the experience over and over again with random people but I think it's probably part of the healing process as well. Because you did say in the first in the in the first episode. So for those listening, if you haven't listened to our uh, our miscarriage episode, you know we the episode of intensely inquisitive called miscarriage. We actually talked about our personal experiences, and one of them was like a near death experience as a result of a miscarriage. So go and listen to it if you haven't listened to it, because some people might be stumbling onto it. But what's really interesting 
It's still the most listened to episode. Uh, and even more interesting is it was released literally the, the first couple of days of 2019. And as we move through 2019, people are still just finding it and just listening to it and just reacting mm. to it. And that's, it's really powerful because you know, people we don't know might comment on, on the Facebook page. And you should sign up. It's a Ryan Gelly Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, you know, they're kind of, you know, they're commenting going, well, this is amazing. People have to hear this. And that's the power of organically sharing stuff. That's the power of real people having real conversations and people connecting with it. And I think that's the most interesting thing about doing stuff like this. And for those that have been through, they've listened to the episode, they've been through it, the, the core things you tried to get out of it and you try to, you know, kind of share with the world, even though it can be painful talking about it again, is talking about things. Definitely. I mean, it's pain, as you say, it's painful because people will hear the episode and they want to talk to you about it. Well, of course they do. You're the star of the episode. They want to talk to you about it. They want to hear parts of the story retold or that, you know, it's kind of, it's an interesting phenomenon. But the fact of the matter is that one of the main things that I think everyone got from it, from you circling the drain of life, is we should talk about important things. We shouldn't bother talking about just small talk mundane rubbish and also we should actually we should embrace experiences Mm. rather than have these taboo topics because people still comment that you know good on you for doing a taboo topic and this is the point right definitely this is the point we should we, we should talk about things that are hard well definitely i don't think there should be taboo topics because in society, there's always going to be someone else that's going through the similar experience to you. And we know that if you share experiences, then everything seems a little bit easier to cope with. So what's the point in holding it in and not sharing it with other people? Exactly. So consider this the sequel hmm. to Miscarriage. We know what happens in sequels. They're bloody horrible. They're never as good as the original. So <laughs> stand by for a cracker then. This is the, the sequel to the Miscarriage episode, and it's about pregnancy and babies. Now, we left off at you having an ectopic pregnancy and almost dying, okay? Now, that's a kind of a – I've said it in a simple sentence, but that's where we left off with a miscarriage episode. We, we both agreed, and please correct me if I'm wrong, we both agreed after getting through that experience, oh, no, 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 we're going to try again. Definitely. This is going to happen. We're, we're going we're gonna to give each other the time we need, but then we're going to do it. Okay, so could you share your journey with us from then to how did the miscarriages you went through – impact on the journey we went through to get pregnant again? I think they impacted greatly in that there wasn't a moment that I felt that I could actually relax throughout the entire pregnancy, not even until we had Hugo in our arms. That was probably the first time I felt like I could breathe, essentially. And I think because of what you went through, a couple of miscarriages so close together and clearly one that was you know really serious, it changes the landscape on pregnancy. So People just decide, hey, you want to have a baby? Let's get pregnant. Mm, um, if only. That's not always the way. And when you have experiences, as you say, until our little guy was out and he was safe, you kind of held your breath. But expand on that for us. What do you mean you held your breath? So you, for starters, you had to get pregnant and then you were pregnant. What about the miscarriages? What actually what actually affected you? What about them? Like, Because it's not the same as everyone's different. Definitely. Well, I think one of the things for me was um, – Having the ruptured ectopic pregnancy, I lost a fallopian tube, which meant my fertility was much um, reduced. And so there was the thought that maybe it wasn't going to be so easy to get pregnant the following time. So that certainly played on my mind. And I was still having a lot of tummy pains from the ectopic, from probably from scarring, from having all the blood in my abdomen. So I was still getting lots of physical reminders of that traumatic experience. And then there's the psychological side of, am I going to be able to get pregnant? Is it going to be in the other fallopian tube? Is it going to miscarriage again? Are we going to have to go through this whole painful experience all over again? So I guess I was pretty anxious about the situation purely based on our previous experience and not wanting to go through that loss and that grief of another baby not making it. And I think what's amazing is for those kind of listening, they might have kind of pause for a second. Hang on, what did she say? Fallopian tube. I don't know if that's the, as much detail as we gave in the miscarriage episode, but the, I think we might have talked about it. But basically, because of the ectopic pregnancy, you in surgery, you lost a fallopian tube. Now, just correct me if I'm wrong. So women have two of them. Yep. And so the egg goes down the fallopian tube and out the other end. Into the uterus. Yeah, that's where it okay. implants. So not only do you have the kind of the PTSD kind of thing from miscarriages, but you now only have... 
of the kind of working parts you would like to have yeah, in, in an ideal yeah. world and you're, and you're trying to get pregnant. And it's really hard to get pregnant. So that's weighing on, on your mind. Um, Definitely. I think also having pain there was also a, a factor as well in that obviously one of the key features of when I had the ectopic rupture was excruciating pain and then I was having constant pain or intermittent pain in my abdomen again and I was worried that I wouldn't actually know if something was going wrong because I already had pain to start with. So yeah. it was all a little bit grey as far as feeling comfortable, ready to go, that kind of thing. Your senses were completely reset due to an ectopic, that, a serious ectopic that, you know, basically had you on death's door. It, it reset all your senses. and it Definitely. Cha- so it really did change how you react to things and made it even, even harder. Maybe I'm wrong, but trying to get pregnant – for the two missed pregnancies we lost, mm. I thought that seemed a bit more, um, a bit more kind of work-like, <laughs> a, a bit harder. And I think in hindsight, looking back now, um, trying to get pregnant this time around and it resulted in a healthy baby seemed like it just worked. It just seemed a bit easier. Do you is that your, is that your memory with regards to actually physically trying to get pregnant this time around? It's definitely, and I think probably because our entire mindset had changed and that we were more of living in the moment and if it happens, it happens and we weren't so focused on the task where I think where when we tried to get pregnant with the previous pregnancies and also way back six years ago with our first child, you time when you have sex so that you have the greatest chance of getting pregnant around your ovulation and then it becomes like some kind of task that you have to force yourself to have sex for this period of time. And instead of taking, like it takes all the enjoyment out of sex and all the pleasure out of it and it just becomes like a job to get pregnant. And I think we didn't look at it like that the second time around in that we just... Well, the third time around, yeah. Fourth time around? <laughs> well, I, don't, I don't know how many times around. No, that's right. And people don't talk about this either. Number one, you know, as a guy... Sex is fantastic, and uh, you know you, they, we enjoy it, um, and we don't. We, we uh, you know, we welcome it. Um, <laughs> but when when you're trying to get pregnant, you, as you say, it's not like it's you know when you're kind of up for it or it's a romantic time. It's when it's the time to give it a go. Definitely. And so you have a window. It's a very small window. That's pressure. Number one. Number two. We already have a child. Yes. So there's, there's very small windows. Again, so pressure. You only need a small window. Pressure by the way. number two. Well, I don't know. If that's that's. All the, that's uh, that's not what she meant to say. I don't think <laughs> she went the wrong window. And then the other pressure is, you know, the miscarriages. And for God's sakes, let's we've got to get this right. Um, so there's a lot of pressure. And, and as you say, we just thought, bugger this. You know, it's just going to happen. If it's going to happen, if it doesn't, it doesn't. And it did actually make it kind of easier on us and more, and more enjoyable. And to the fact where we probably just probably actually enjoyed the experience. Definitely. Um, but it doesn't change the fact. That, and again, this is what people don't really talk about. Because I think is there a perception out there that some people hey they just go out and um, have sex and get pregnant, but I mean, it's that's actually not true. There is a window. I guess there's some people that that does just happen. Yeah, too. yeah, but still, that, that's because it happened in a window. There was a set Definitely. of circumstances led up to it. They we didn't have just, to have ovulate. Yeah. It has to be an egg so, floating around. So, so people don't talk about that. It isn't actually the easiest thing to do for everyone, and that's something that can really impact people. Oh my gosh, absolutely. So the fact that we you know had things on top of it. It makes it an experience that you kind of you get through and you think, oh, my God, thank God we're to the next yeah. step. Well, I, the other thing I just wanted to mention was that with all this tummy pain I was having, I went and had an ultrasound just to make sure everything was fine. And at that moment of the ultrasound, the, the ultrasonographer said, oh, you're actually just about to ovulate so that one of my ovaries, there was a sign that it was just about to release an egg. And so they're like, oh, it's a perfect time to try to get pregnant. I remember coming home and telling you that. But it was with such trepidation because psychologically I wasn't ready to start trying to have a baby. Yeah. And But right. the universe had just told us you're about to ovulate yeah. and this is exactly when it's going to happen. And But we didn't take that opportunity because it wasn't right for us then. And I'm glad we didn't. And that's but. the lesson learned for everyone, that, you know, that sometimes you have to just understand that, you know, what your, your gut is right and that you know, life is life. It, It'll just happen. Yeah. It's going to happen. And it's, that wasn't the right time for us. So we didn't kind of 
think, well, that's the end, mm. um, or we better we better do it. And I think what what's really interesting is because of our experiences and, and the pressures you, you, we've talked about with regards to conceiving. From a guy's point of view, I, I think I, I put a lot of pressure on myself as well because I, you know I obviously was affected by the miscarriages. I wanted I wanted another baby, and you know you've gone through so much, and all I needed to do really was just basically have sex with you, and and you know that's, <laughs> that was really my job. And you know a lot of times the pressure gets too much, and it's kind of like you know what I'm out of here. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think my penis. Is Mickey Mouse, but um, <laughs> it's true, right? And it's like so, yeah, you know. Really. And, I, and then I feel horrible. This lady's been; she's just about died. She's she's carried pregnancy. She's lost them. She's done everything she can. For God's sakes, surely you can just you know make it happen. And and the pressure is is extraordinary on everyone. And yeah, it's an, and and what I find amazing about the whole we'll get onto the whole we're pregnant thing, but the conception thing I found amazing is okay. So you lost a fallopian tube. Okay, so there's one one gone, one left, an egg drops down, it gets fertilized, we have a baby. Okay, so we, we, we had a baby, we got pregnant, that's the whole point of this podcast, we've come out the, the other end. So the egg came down through the working fallopian tube, obviously. No. People are listening going, so what are you talking about? So you, you lost a fallopian tube and that's the side the egg came down. Yes. If you want to talk about the universe and if something's going to happen for you, it's going to happen for you, all you've got to do is get out of its way and just let it happen. This is a this is a proof Very that it's true. going to happen. So what happened? So I actually ovulated from the ovary that has no fallopian tube and like for some reason it managed to make its way to the uterus and get fertilized and which I think is something under 5% like 1 or 3% of pregnancies come from the ovary that doesn't have the tube in people like myself. So it was very very rare occurrence to start with. So Almost like a miracle, you could say. I mean, how did that make you feel? How did you rationalise that? What did you think when you heard that? I couldn't rationalise that. Yeah. I couldn't. I think it just, yeah, I don't know. I, how I just, did it make you feel? Well, it made me feel even more grateful. Yeah. But then it also had a degree of sadness to it for me as well because I thought, well, if this didn't implant and this is the only ovary that was going to ovulate all the time, then we may never have had another baby. So it was like bittersweet. It was like such a celebration that this little miracle had come out of that ovary, mm. but also white, black, that that's, could have been quite complicated as well. And I guess in that whole kind of conception period, so we, we were able to um, get pregnant again, which was amazing after everything had gone through and after that incredible story, we were able to get there, but... Due to the prior experiences, once again, I personally found it really hard to accept or even like enjoy the fact that we were pregnant again. The first 10 weeks are always tricky, especially with new kind of technologies and tests. How did, how did you find the first 10 weeks of the pregnancy and what did prior experiences kind of do to that experience of the first 10 weeks this time around? I hated it. I was so anxious. and I About what? About losing the pregnancy. Like we have in the past. A couple yeah. of, okay. Or it being um, ectopic because we didn't know it was from the ovary that had no fallopian tube at that stage. That was not till way down the track once we'd had ultrasounds. So, so you were scared it was going to get mark. stuck again effectively. Definitely, definitely. Even though that's kind of irrational, it was still an experience you've gone through. Well, it's not irrational because your um, risk of having another ectopic pregnancy is higher if you've had a previous ectopic pregnancy. So that makes that's another thing weighing on your shoulders. Definitely. So um, thankfully our obstetrician was really supportive and we had a really early scan to make sure the baby was in the uterus, not in the tube. So... Um, um, once that happened, which was at six weeks, it's still six weeks of wondering where the baby is. And then every time I got a twinge in my abdomen thinking that I was about to have the same experience, given that I had a ruptured ectopic at seven weeks. So yeah. it was all very, all very stressful and anxiety provoking for me that first six to seven weeks until we knew it was in the uterus. And then I still, I really still didn't believe it was still there, even though I had mm. proof that it was. I think that's just my psychological issues weighing on my mind that the same thing was going to happen again. We really struggled to find it to find it enjoyable at all. And really, we were grateful, but it's hard to accept and enjoy. And it didn't really get any better in the first 10 weeks because oh, you go God. through all these different tests. So just just share a bit about this um, kind of 10-week test we did. We thought, oh, my God, we've made it to 10 weeks. How amazing is this? This is going to work. And we have this kind of 10-week test or something and how, how that impacted our experience again. So we um, had a test where you go and have an ultrasound and you have a blood test and the blood test picks up parts of the baby's DNA to work out if they've got Down syndrome or any of the other chromosomal abnormalities. Is that a common test these days? It is far more common than it used to be. Yeah. Um, cost is probably the main limiting factor. Okay. I think it's about $500 or something out of okay. pocket. 
don't quote me on that. Um, so I think not everyone does it, but certainly a lot of people do. And you start with having an ultrasound. And we went back to the same ultrasound place that we had the previous ultrasound. Well, the last two miscarriages really kind of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, And that was when we first found out with our first miscarriage that the baby had died was that 10-week ultrasound for yeah. that test. We actually and went in, they went to have a look and they couldn't, no couldn't find anything. In, That's so, yeah. right. So I was really anxious about that. Of course. And so we went back it to the wasn't. same place and it was the same ultrasonographer, the same person. The same person <laughs> at the same place. What are what are the chances? Because they travel around, they go to different places. We were thinking, no, no, this is not right. And so the first thing I did was to look and see if there was a heartbeat. And I was so reassured that there was a heartbeat. But then as soon as I saw the heartbeat, I saw that there was an excessive amount of fluid around the baby's neck. And it was very obvious to me. Um, to the point where it, even the professional people at the place said, yeah, okay, let's just... Yeah. Bail on the testing at this point. Yeah, so it was like history repeating. So they essentially said, so you can't have the blood test today because we're not sure if this pregnancy is going to be viable, like that godforsaken word viable. So essentially we didn't have the blood test and we were told to go away and come back at um, I think 12 weeks I think it was or something around that. It was at least two to three weeks down the track. It was an extension of our horrific anxiety. Correct. So then we had to wait, wait a further few weeks to have another ultrasound to see what the fluid was doing and then if the fluid had improved then we'd have the blood test at that stage. But that was all on the proviso that the baby actually didn't die in yeah, that period right. of time. So you can imagine after after the miscarriages we've gone through to have this amazing news of pregnancy and then go through all these ex- kind of almost exact same bumps. It just it just knocks you. You think this is absolutely ridiculous. How hard can it be? That's what you start definitely, to ask yourself. Definitely, definitely, definitely. So I think that really made the experience even harder. Yeah, on absolutely. top of everything else. Looking back now, because we've obviously. We've covered a bit of ground with the pregnancies we've, uh, you know, we've had successfully, and the pregnancies that were, as they say, unviable. It is a truly amazing thing. It, for me, I mean, my way of describing it, it's essentially magic pregnancy. And <laughs> and you, you were pregnant with our first child about six years ago. What did you find had changed with pregnancy? You know, the experience, the guidelines, the advice this time around. You've just twigged something that I want to actually say before I talk about the guidelines. In that the whole six years ago, people stop saying, like, why did you wait so long to have your next baby if you don't know why the person has waited six years to have another pregnancy. I found that really irritating. So I'd have have people that I work with or I've had had random strangers come up to me when I was heavily pregnant and they'd be like, oh, how old is your other child? And I'd be like, oh, he's five. And they'd be like, oh, that's a long time between pregnancies. And I was like, well, I stopped lying and I started saying, well, actually it isn't. This is our fourth pregnancy. And then they'd kind of be looking at me perplexed and I'd be like, well, the other two died. And so that started more of a conversation. But it's just people don't really think before they say stuff like that. Because the six years – it's not because we didn't want to get pregnant six years, like two years after our yeah, first sure, child. Sure. It's just that we had a set of circumstances that yeah. happened. And I think people have to understand that. And the idea that saying these types of things, number one, there's no, no real point in saying it. You're not going to get anything back that's valuable. And just think about the impact it has on people. So you know, we have a son, we have two sons now, and the gap is five years. Is it five mm. years? And you know, there could have been two or three kids in between. That wasn't meant to be. Yeah. It isn't the case. And by the way, can I just say, putting the miscarriages as an excuse to people, how about you just shut up? And <laughs> I don't, here's, here's an excuse for you. Bloody nothing. You know, I don't need to tell you why there's a gap between my kids. You go ahead and you enjoy and you, you make the most out of your life and I'll go ahead and I'll do the best with my life. It's bloody ridiculous in the first place. Who, who cares yeah. if you've got a gap? Who cares how many pregnancies or kids? Like seriously – I, I don't I, I don't understand that and I don't think I have great insight into that experience as a guy but for you has that been quite trying for you definitely and why what's I mean okay so put aside people and just being you know just I guess just being nosy parkers but how does it actually affect you well I think it's it just makes you relive your experiences about yeah. what what traumas you've been through so I guess it's it's there's nothing positive comes out of people being nosy about that kind of thing. No. 
I can't speak for other people, but I guess it would be similar if you were a married couple and you haven't had a baby yet and people keep asking you why you haven't had a baby. So maybe spare a thought for those people as well. Maybe they're trying to get pregnant and they're well, that's right. struggling or maybe they don't want to have children and that's their choice or there's so many different permutations. You shouldn't just assume that yeah, you get married, right. you have kids straight away no, and, and that's how everyone does it. And people are like that, right? Some people... They, they get married and they've actually tried their ass off for a decade for kids and it just doesn't work for them. Definitely. And, and others haven't found the right person. Definitely. And so it's this kind of ridiculousness that we're adding everything to age and time and you must do this by this time and this by that time. And can I just say from a purely broad point of view, on that particular point, everyone in the world right now, if I could push a button and reset the world, I would. And the reset would be what you want to do in your life will happen when it happens. This, you have to do this by 20 and this by 30 and this by 40. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's probably the, it's, I would say it's one of the main things holding you back from achieving anything in your life is if you are putting time frames on it. It is utterly moronic mm. and, and you're wasting your time. And, and you're right. It hurts people. What's the point? So you, you have to kind of think about that. And hopefully these kind of conversations, they enlighten people. You'll mm. go, okay, there's, people could go through many different many different situations and scenarios, everyone, everyone has their own individual circumstances. So there's no use just giving them generic questions like, oh, that's a bit of a gap. Oh, geez, what's with the gap? You know, when's your next kid? You know what I mean? Yeah, like, exactly. Like, seriously. And, and, it's like, and also if there's, if there's a gap, maybe they, they have a, a child who they love so much they don't think they want any more. Maybe they have a child who's really, you know, just challenging. You know, you just, you just don't know. So mm. it, it's kind of strange. But getting back to... So six years ago to this pregnancy, mm. with regards to the experience and guidelines and advice, the overall kind of pregnancy experience you went through this time around, had, had much changed this time around? Pregnancy-wise, I think probably the biggest thing that I noticed was that early screening test with the ultrasound, the blood tests. When we had Conan, um, we just had a, a combined screening test, which was more ultrasound-based, and they didn't have the blood test at that stage. So that was probably the biggest thing that I noticed had changed with, as far as pregnancy goes. All the restrictions as far as what to eat, what not to eat, all of those type of things yeah. were pretty much the same. We'll definitely get to that. There's no question about that. So really being pregnant hasn't really changed much since the first no, five I years think, ago. I think it's different if you have any medical conditions while you're pregnant, certainly because medicine just progresses as we find out more yeah. about things. So certainly some of the guidelines for the medical issues have changed. But as far as someone who doesn't have medical issues and just having a standard pregnancy with no complications, I found it was all pretty much the same. The thing that I noticed was that I actually couldn't do as much as I did previously, probably because I was older and because I was more tired from having a kid at home as well. That's right. Well, your life has completely changed. This is your fourth pregnancy. Obviously, we're, we're both older. We have a child. We have mm. a life. Of course. I mean, the, the energy of a first pregnancy is unsurpassed. You know, like That's true. That's true. I've heard people play down, even reject outright this kind of notion that pregnant women should avoid certain things during their pregnancy. So for the health of their baby, it's their choice. I mean, I just want to say from the start, what you choose to do during your pregnancy is your choice. That's your call. But we've obviously gone through a few experiences and, you know, the health of our baby was obviously in focus. So my observation was you, on the other hand, you were very particular. You played it really safe in all aspects of the pregnancy. And I don't think I've noticed really anything you didn't play safe in. It was quite extraordinary. And, you know, I'm grateful for it. But can you tell us what did you do in that respect? And what did you see as the risk in being more dismissive of those potential dangers that you, that you avoided? From your point of view, this is in no way medical advice or us telling what you shouldn't should do. This is us sharing our experience. Hmm. I think because I was so anxious about losing the pregnancy. Yeah. That- I chose to be really strict as far as avoiding things that could lead to possible miscarriage through either infection or through um, some kind of consequence as, say, taking a medication that has been linked to malformations of the fetus or eating soft cheeses because there's a risk of listeria, which is a bacterial infection that can cause miscarriage, drinking alcohol leading to fetal alcohol syndrome, all of these different things. So I chose to 
be very strict with that, be probably more for my own anxiety levels and not wanting to risk anything on this pregnancy because it was so precious that we got this far. Mm, absolutely. And then I think for me, um, just sharing a bit more about myself, is that I have celiac disease, which adds a whole other level of complications. Which so, is? So celiac disease is an autoimmune condition where you essentially have an autoimmune reaction if you're exposed to gluten. So things like oats, rye, barley, wheat, those type of things. And with celiac disease, it isn't just that, oh, I get a tummy ache and the world moves on. It actually can induce a miscarriage if you get exposure to the gluten. So I was really, really strict as a result of that. So eating out. That's no takeaway ever, pretty much. Yeah, so eating out was pretty much off the um, the, The menu option. Yeah, Um, especially because something that people don't really mention with celiac disease is the cross-contamination. So that if someone uses a utensil on one food that has wheat in it and then uses it on food that I was going to consume that I would actually get a reaction to that as well so we had to I had to be really strict as a result of that and that really impacted greatly on life Um, absolutely and then there was the other side of things like don't consume too much fish because of the lead level risk and so like we have a pretty healthy diet and we often had fish more than once a week so we had to change that and then we have a few processed meats and you're not meant to have cold processed meats so I didn't do that so my entire diet changed Mm. as a result and then the other thing really to mention is that we'd been trying to get pregnant and then we'd had all these miscarriages and other things happen first over the space of nearly two and a half years and you never gave up all these withdrawals I mean literally from from the start of the first miscarriage in the second and then getting pregnant so since 2017 i've had no alcohol you, well it's not it's, it's not it's not even that you, you know no alcohol no, you know no 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 kind of soft cheeses no kind of deli meats and you know and as you said all those things that you just you know certain medications because soft you know, serve ice cream category b that kind of stuff yeah and again People might be listening going, geez, they really played it safe. Oh, you know, and, and, and that's right. That's a great observation. We're not telling you what to do. This is yeah. just our experience because of what we've been through. But it's, can I say, given you obviously grew a baby inside you, that's a sacrifice. But what a massive sacrifice to do all that on top of it, just on the premise that, you know, we have to kind of try and, you know, get this baby right. Not that in the end we really had any control, in, in, but it's just... No, I guess it's just... But that you can control. Oh, well, yeah, it's just an extraordinary, stopping external factors making things worse, I guess, isn't it's it? An extra, I, I mean, you know, I think it's an extraordinary thing to do. It's a massive sacrifice and I can assume it was driven purely by just the dangers, the potential. It, the word potential is important. These Definitely. are potential dangers. And you really held fast. It, it's it's an amazing thing. Do you look back and and don't look at it badly? Like no, I've no I'm regrets glad I did. at all. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. And even when I had killer hay fever for the last two and a half years, that I normally take regular hay fever medication, and I just decided not to take it, even though it was safe-ish. I have no regrets. I yeah. would sneeze every day and feel terrible, and I'd be happy to feel like that if if it meant that we had a baby at the end of the, the time. Does it bother you that some people? kind of so vocal about, you know, ah, that's not really necessary. Who cares? And I have a friend who she drank and ate and did everything and their baby's fine. Like, does that bother you or is that just, that's just people, they can be themselves, let them do their thing? I think if the egg topics taught me anything, it's that I don't actually care about what other people think, (laughs) what other people's opinions are. So in the past, I would have been like, oh my God, how can they be possibly acting like this? It's so irresponsible. It's a baby that can't um, fend for itself. Mm. But you know what? People can choose to do whatever they want. People can make shit decisions. They can make decisions that we think are incorrect. And that's their, that's their God given right. Yeah, It's a great point. It's a point, you know, I, I try to live by in the end, you can't live on other people's opinions Definitely. and expectations. I mean, it's it's good to be a good person and you should always do what's right in life, but you've got to stop caring about what other people think. It really means nothing. And it just <laughs> weighs you down. It does. You're so much lighter not having to worry about what other people are thinking about. And it's, it's not you. Mm. You know, stop burdening yourself with that. It's a great point and it's a great lesson from, from the ectopic miscarriage. Now, given your previous multiple miscarriages, and obviously the fact that, you know, one almost killed you, which you can relive in our miscarriage episode. Did you enjoy this pregnancy? And why do you think that is either way? I didn't enjoy it at all. So when you say you didn't enjoy it at all, what do you mean? <laughs> I was just too anxious at the entire time. So every Nine months. T- nine months. Every time I go to the obstetrician, I just assume the baby was going to be dead. That, every we, time. We had a pact pretty much, didn't we? Our, our idea was step one, show us a heartbeat. Yeah. Every so time we, we saw the obstetrician, yeah. you did that. <laughs> We never went to an appointment without assuming, let's just start from the premise that the baby's not 
alive anymore and yeah. be grateful for whatever comes after that. That was our premise. And that's a really twisted premise to have. But you, it's, it's an insight into where we were. What else? I mean, how did it affect your, your emotions and you as a person on a day-to-day basis? Well, I think the other thing, just to take a little sidestep, is that with having a five-year-old at home that is like a petri dish of infections, I felt like yes. I couldn't breathe. It's like, oh, my God, what's he got this time? Is this yeah. something that's going to cause a problem with their pregnancy? Oh, my God, what is it this time? And there was a couple of times where they thought he had a condition that actually caused issues in pregnancy. So I had to have blood tests, repeat blood tests in a month. Yes. That had to be done twice. So it was just like more anxiety to add to the situation because you just felt like, oh, gosh, I'm just trying to protect and cocoon this yes. little baby so much and there's just so many factors trying to stuff this up. Because everyone knows kids <laughs> in kinder are really the, 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 the captains of hand hygiene. Yeah. If anyone can teach you hand hygiene, go and get a lesson from kids in kinder. They are right up there. So, you, you know, I mean, but it just shows how amazing – the pregnancy experience is. You you were Teflon. You were Teflon, pretty oh. much. This kid, he gave you battered up just about everything. Well, then there was the flu outbreak on the ward that oh, I work at at work. God help me. God help me. And, and, you know, it wasn't like we weren't sick all the time. Did you also, being pregnant, having something growing inside you and in, in your past experiences, did it, on top of the pregnancy kind of, you know, the pregnancy changes you go through, how did you tackle it emotionally? I think it was more really just being grateful for each, each milestone. I... I made sure that I set myself goals in my mind so that so once we did the scan and the, the fluid issue had resolved, the next goal was, well, let's hope that the anatomy scan at, at 20 weeks is all normal and then I can feel a little bit more relaxed then. And then when I started feeling the baby move, which is actually quite early this time, so it was like about 16 weeks, then that was a little bit reassuring that the baby was still alive. But then as the time went on, that actually became more anxiety-provoking because I'd be like, oh, has he not moved as much as normal or, yeah. or has he? And that's one thing that has changed in pregnancy. That's one thing I did forget to say before is that in the past it was if you feel like your baby's movements have reduced, then have a lie down, have a cold drink of water. And we know that that's rubbish. So we now know that if there's any reduction in movement that you should seek medical advice, yeah, yeah. either through your midwife or your obstetrician or whoever that is or your GP. Um, and so that was always in the back of my mind. And our obstetrician always really drummed that into me. He's like, Renee, I want to hear from you. Yeah, that's if right. there's any change, let me know. There's no silly call. And look, that was really reassuring, but it didn't it didn't stop me from no. feeling anxious about, oh my gosh, he hasn't moved as much. Is that because I've just been busy or is it because mm. there's something going on? And so I think my experience with the miscarriages, I just had this heightened sense of concern for the baby all the time. Mm. And I guess once I realised it wasn't in the fallopian tube, it was in the uterus, that was one little milestone that I could relax a bit. But then it was just one little step after the other. And then I was always thinking about, well, labour and that's not exactly without risk either. So is, is it just going to go to shit then as well? So I, like when I said at the start, I felt like I couldn't breathe until he was literally in our arms. I'm it's not true. joking. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. how I felt. <laughs> and, and it shows even in five years how things can change and, and you know, medical knowledge and perceptions, like you said about, you know, have, have, a, have a glass of water and a lie down. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of the equivalent of, you know, like when, you know, when your kids are kinder and he falls over and hurts himself and you say, what, what did they, what, how did they treat it? And, oh, they got a wet washcloth. So, so, so just so I'm clear, so you got a wet washcloth and you did like, or you did like a singing dance in a circle around him and then you prayed to the sun and then what did you sprinkle fairy dust on I mean, yeah, that's How about some effing ice, champ? How about we get some ice? Uh, so, yeah, fantastic. Thanks for the wet washcloths to cure my son's ailments. I really appreciate it. Now, this is something that's really, like, I think people will find really interesting too is tell us about the experience of actually bringing Hugo, our, our little baby boy, into the world. So we've, we've finally got to this moment where, where you're ready to, to give birth. Tell us about the experience of that day. Wow. So I think you never truly forget labour, ever. So it's like <laughs> even after an ecto- even after an ectopic and almost dying. <laughs> Absolutely, okay. flashbacks to the first delivery all the time. And I think if you choose to have a normal vaginal delivery and you choose just to wait till you're going to labour naturally, um, so what, just what spontaneously. You did. I mean, naturally is such a terrible word. Spontaneously, which is what I chose to do which so for me that was hard because you actually hand over a lot of control to to your own body I guess which sounds strange but you don't plan when you have the baby you you can't plan 
all right, Conan's going to be in daycare, so I'm going to go into labour between nine and four and the baby's going to deliver it here and it's all going to work perfectly fine from my perfect type A personality needs to have everything organised. Didn't happen. No, definitely not. What happened was I was sleeping in bed with Conan and at 3am woke up to some quite severe cramping sensations in my lower abdomen. I thought, oh, maybe this is just one of those Braxton Hicks or like a practice labour pains and I thought I'll just go back to sleep. And then 15 minutes later, again, it's like, oh, okay, maybe this isn't. And then it just kept getting more regular and more intense. And so after an hour of this happening, I thought, okay, I better probably go wake you up. And yep. so I came down and wake you up and I said, I, I think I'm in labour. It feels like I am. Um, it was about four. Four-ish, yeah. yeah, yeah. AM, AM. Yeah. <laughs> so then like, oh, let's have a, we'll both have a shower and we'll see how things go. And I think... There's like this pressure that you you know when you're in labour and God forbid that you call fa- family and friends to come and help you and it, it's false labour and you're not actually in labour and you just wasted everyone's time. So I kept feeling like, oh, am I actually in labour? I think I am actually in labour. And oh, maybe I'm not, maybe I don't know. So I just kind of played yeah. on that for a while. But by the time it was nearly 5am, we're like, oh, all right, we'll call the hospital. So I call the hospital and they're like, oh, you could stay at home for longer. They're like, no, we're not going to do that because mm. the first delivery was really quick. Really quick. Yeah. Um, so only five hours, which is unusual for a first Absolutely. baby. And we live an hour away from the hospital that we were having the baby in. So we didn't want to get stuck in peak hour for several hours, no, which no. would have been a disaster. And, of course, we had a five-year-old. We couldn't take him to school at five in the morning. Yeah. So he had to come with us. So our five-year-old's in the car with us coming to hospital. As you know, we have a – if you listen to the miscarriage episode, wherever we, whenever we go to hospital, we take the five-year-old. <laughs> 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 Which definitely doesn't play on his anxiety issues at all. <laughs> so obviously we got to the got to the hospital. You know, I'm I'm assuming I don't know. Was it five ish, six ish? I can't remember. Six ish, I think. Yeah. And you know, obviously family came and got our son. Don't worry, he was safe. He was taken away. He wasn't there. Don't worry. Um, from your point of view, you know, getting into the birthing suite it happened really pretty quick. Definitely, yeah, it was definitely. about an hour, and you were in there, so it wasn't long. Well, when I, we first went up to the assessment unit, and they were just saying, "Oh, yeah, you, your contractions aren't really regular yet, so you could probably go home." I was like, "I'm not going home." Like I knew that I was in labour by that stage. Yeah, sure, showed them, and they got me to uh, have it an internal assessment and see if my cervix had opened up at all. So the baby has to come through the cervix, so it has to open. So uh, another fantastic title. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it was only one centimetre. It needs to get much, much bigger than that for the baby to come out. I would think so. Yeah. I so. saw the dude. He was huge. <laughs> <laughs> so they're like, no, nah, you can go for a walk if you don't want to go home. But we'll, we'll do some monitoring first. So they did some monitoring. The baby was happy and the contractions were strong, but they were like, no, nah, it's not that regular. Blah, blah. Anyway, they went away to do something. They came back. And by the time they came back, they're like, you're in quite a bit of distress, aren't you? And I was like, yes, they have mm. ramped up. They have really ramped up. So this is nearly 7 o'clock by now. And so they're like, no. No, you can go around to Labor Ward. Flash forward and Hugo was born at 9.54. So yeah. I was not wrong in under, any way. Basically <laughs> un, under three, three hours, hours yeah. from getting into a, a birthing suite he was born. But how was the, the actual birthing experience for you? Oh, so intense. So intense. Why? Oh, I think it's just... Was it all physical or was it mental as well? Oh, both. For me, both, definitely. So I pain relief-wise, I just had some of the gas nitric oxide. I actually didn't have much pain. at all, to be honest with you. And did the similar kind of thing that I did with Conan, which was just stay upright, move around, yep. all the rest of those things. But a lot was playing on my mind. Was our little guy okay? Because we don't spend much time away from him, our five-year-old. Is this going to go okay? Is the baby going to be all right? Or is there going to be a complication during the delivery? And then there's also the fact of, the fact of um, me wanting my mum to be there and she wasn't there as well. So that was playing on my mind too. So I think... So I, that was playing... Not having your mum there, was that actually playing on your mind the whole time? That yeah, wasn't definitely. just like an after afterthought. Definitely. What did you what did you want? You just wanted her to be there for yeah, the birth. Of course. To support you. God damn it, Orion, don't make me cry again. <laughs> <laughs> but no, seriously, when this is this is an important moment. People don't understand why you you get so emotional because your mum missed it. Why 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 are you so emotional because your mum missed the birth? <laughs> oh, Dying of cancer. That's why. And she was there for our our first. She was in the yeah. room for our first. This is an experience that you wanted her to be a part of. Definitely. Obviously, there's reasons why people can't make it. 
she's got a pretty good a pretty good reason. But it doesn't change the fact that it really impacted you. Definitely. But you were there, so that's okay. Well, <laughs> I was there, but you know what? It's okay. Like, there's something, nothing wrong with you. You're not doing anything wrong for being sad about something. You, know, you, you wanted your mum there and she wasn't there. Is that something you talk to her about? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but do you uh, get... Yeah, I'm really following my own advice about talking about things openly. <laughs> <laughs> but you get that it's okay to feel sad and emotional about it. Is well, it- I think definitely that's true. And also with childbirth, it is a very heightened emotional time as well because you're bringing new life into the world, but you're also, you lose so much control yourself over everything. Yeah. And you, yeah. Yeah. You said, I asked you why was it so important for her to be there? And you didn't really answer it from your point. You said, well, she's dying of cancer. That's, that's her thing. But why was it so important for you? I don't know, maybe just for support and yep. maybe just, I guess, people like to have their mum around when they're in a lot of pain and yep. they want comfort, I guess. That's something probably that goes back to being a child, maybe. I don't know. I don't know that I have an answer for that. I mean, obviously, it's really, really deep, the emotion you have about this, missing this experience. It's a big thing for you, right? Well, it is, but then I also understand why she couldn't be there. How is your experience caring for a newborn this time compared to five years ago? Well, I think the the crux of it hasn't changed, that you just need to love them, make sure they're full of milk of some kind, whether that's formula or breast milk, and that they sleep. So that, that hasn't changed. But all the other parts around newborns have from swaddling to baby carrying to cots, all different things like that, and then sterilise this, don't sterilise this, wash this in water only, don't do this, don't do that. So that's all greatly changed from when we had Conan, that's for sure. Yeah, and it, isn't that amazing that that does? Like we, so we had our first baby in a capsule or something. Yeah. And then we were, when we put in there, we get these big, massive, big blanket sheet things, we wrap him around. And yeah. Do all these, like, had, to, had, had to go to like angel wrapping school or something. Yes. It's kind of ridiculous. And pull yes. it out of the hips and all this kind of rubbish. <laughs> like, oh, did I forget step seven? I forget. He can't walk for the rest of his life. I forget step seven for God's sakes. And now you just put him in this bloody contraption, zoop, you zip him up and they're ready to go. It's brilliant. But seriously, like it is extraordinary, isn't it? It is absolutely extraordinary. Definitely. Every little thing. And I, th- I found too, you know, when you go to the maternal child health checks, mm. um, the first time with Conan, it seemed like there was a lot more services potentially or a lot more things they might have done when now it's very focused on, I guess, just a relationship and a service. And like there used to be what, mother's groups and courses and things. They're and- only for first time mums because once you've had one child, okay. no one gives a shit. So that <laughs> see, that doesn't make any sense to me. Someone explained to me why just because this isn't your first baby – you don't deserve refresher staff or access to other women who have babies that might want to you know, use you as support and vice versa. Definitely. And I find that bloody ridiculous. Well, I found And it's a five-year gap, by the way. Definitely. <laughs> I found in hospital that I would not get as much attention as the first-time mums because yeah. they're like, oh, she's just a relaxed second-time mum. You don't need to worry. She's got it all sorted out with breastfeeding and doing things, which, sure, I felt far more relaxed than as a first-time mum. But it was five years ago. I've yeah. forgotten most things. Like I remember laughing in the delivery suite at you trying to dress the baby in a singlet and not knowing how to get the singlet on the baby. Which one was this on the first one? No, the with Hugo. Oh, so I dressed him fully in the birthing suite, just to be clear. I achieved my goal very well. Thank you very much. Uh, but the, the fact of the matter is you, you feel like you're going to break him. Yeah, yeah. You definitely. feel like you're going to break him. Like, but that's not true. I just uh, I just jammed him out of my vagina. <laughs> it is extraordinary. You know, this uh, 4.12 kilo yeah. baby, you know, na- so is naturally huge. born just gonna, just gets pushed out and then I'm like, oh, how do I put the singlet on? Watch your, little, watch your little head there, buddy. It's like, oh, who am I kidding? Your head's bigger than mine. It's like the guy's huge. It is an ex- observation I found too. And it's really interesting because I don't know. I don't know if that's right. For God's sakes, if, you, if you're – a woman or you're a, you know, a partnership that have brought a baby into the world, well, that's a new person, that's a new individual, it's a new experience. Why the hell do you deserve different treatment or less treatment? It seems very strange to me. No, I agree. I think they should offer it and then you can have the right to decline it if you don't want it. But I think that should be offered still like mother's groups and things like that for sure. 
Yeah. And I think the other assumption that's really dangerous is that just because you've done it once means you know how to do it all again. And that's and just not right. Yeah. And I think different people, different Definitely. And my experience with breastfeeding with Conan, Conan was totally different than this time. And I felt far more supported this time. And um, even though I've had issues with milk supply, I've had support to be able to increase that because it doesn't come naturally. It isn't easy and it's really hard work and you have to put a lot of effort into it or some people do anyway. And as a result of that, people, I think, give up quickly with breastfeeding because it isn't easy. Here's a, here's a taboo thing. I think I've discovered this from the experience with you. Breastfeeding. This seems like a taboo thing. And here's what I've learned from what I – and you can tell me your experiences. Number one – um, a lot of women, through no fault of their own and just crap support, quit and give up on breastfeeding their baby after a couple of days or a week because it just isn't working for either party and it's and they feel depressed and sad and they just bugger this, get the bottle. And and number two, that um, the impact of that can actually have a detrimental feeling on the woman in as in I'm not a very good mother or I can't even give a baby breast milk. Oh, definitely. I felt like that when my milk hadn't come in and then I didn't have enough. But that's not – how is that your fault? How can you control that? No, no, definitely can't. But I think that you set yourself up to fail and that you want to do something and then it doesn't happen. And, like, Hugo didn't get back to his birth weight until nearly three and a half weeks after. So it was a long time down the track. But how do you see that relationship? You know, new mums, breastfeeding, oh, look, this is not going to work for other party, quit. That's not their fault. how do, how do you, what do you think the main issues are? I mean, clearly, for starters, you're working with a baby. They're not just going to pick something up. And, the, and the, sometimes you feel like the people in the hospital go, oh, don't worry, he knows what to do. He'll, you know, he'll work it mm. out. Hang on. <laughs> what, what? I think there's so many factors that influence someone's success with breastfeeding. So there's the baby factors of are they latching properly onto the breast and there's the mum factors of are they making milk, are they stressed, are they getting enough sleep, are they drinking enough water, all of those things. And then there's other factors where – People just assume that it's natural and so therefore it will just happen easily. And then when it doesn't, they feel disappointed or when if they need to give formula and some people see formula as like poison where we know it isn't, it's perfectly fine nutrition for babies if you can't breastfeed or you don't want to breastfeed. So, or you need a top up or whatever. Yeah, yeah, so we've been doing a bit of a mix of everything and that's completely fine. So I think there's so many factors that influence it. And then once you go home, if you don't have a lot of support through family or if you don't have a good maternal child health nurse that's really supportive of you continuing to breastfeed and helping you, then you can just give up, so to speak, or stop doing it because it is really hard. But I think the biggest thing that influences it is that we just assume that it's easy and that everyone's able to do it. And that's just not the case. Just because you're a mum and you've got a baby. Definitely. Yeah. And that's just not the case. Yeah. And don't feel bad about that. No. Ask for support and help. Definitely. So drawing on all your pregnancy experiences, good and bad, what advice would you give your younger self? Now you've gone through all these experiences, these miscarriages, near-death pregnancies. What, what advice would you give your, your younger self? I think the first bit of advice would be don't wait for a perfect time to try to get pregnant. So don't wait until you've completed your career goal X, Y, or Z, or don't wait until you've got the house. Uh, don't wait until you've got X, Y, or Z materialistic object because you don't actually know how long it's going to take you to get pregnant or if you're not going to be able to get pregnant. And so all of these other materialistic things or occupational things all can come at a different time. So there's never a perfect time to have a baby. They turn your entire world into turmoil as far as being organised and doing things that you want to do on your terms. But that's the one of the best things about them is that mm. you just have to go with the flow with it and it makes you relax and enjoy yeah. the more mundane things of life. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is to relax and enjoy your baby because you don't get that newborn beautiful period ever back again. I think you remind me of it very frequently when I'm bitching and moaning after being up pretty much the entire night and only having three hours sleep and um which and is feeling really cr- bad which is <laughs> really feeling not. cross at the baby for staying up all night um and i even only a couple of days ago said to you oh he was just like gooing and garring at me and smiling at me between two to five a.m and all i wanted to do was him to go to bloody sleep and and then but then i was like you reminded me that like this is our little rainbow miracle baby mm. and like isn't it great that he's gooing and garring at you and i'm like well that's actually really true but 
sometimes it's okay to feel resentful at the time. Because that's normal. But, that's yeah. normal. Sleep deprivation. <laughs> yeah, you know, Your entire life is based on the baby. Yeah. You get tiny windows. Enough to record a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that my advice for me as a first-time mum would be just be calm and the baby will be calm. Just enjoy the baby because you don't get those moments again. And to actually just like soak it in and, and really revel in that that newborn period and all those little milestones as well. Other advice would definitely be about breastfeeding and about birth and having no expectations yeah. and asking for help, whether that's physical help or psychological help. All of those contribute to your ability to be a good parent and to get through those tough experiences. So I think talking about things which I need to listen to myself a bit more about and being open and accepting help would be the other thing, definitely. Because, you know, your family and your loved ones are actually, they're so important to you and you forget that. And uh, I guess I think, how many people do you reckon on their deathbed have ever said, geez, I wish I worked more or made more money? No. I don't think anyone's on their deathbed's going to go, George, I wish I worked more or made more money because you can't take it with you. What you're, you're saying, you've been saying recently? Worked more to get more money to buy more things. Well, to, for me, to impress it's, people yeah. that you don't, don't get me started on the gold. <laughs> don't get me started on the golden handcuffs. Essentially, it's you know you work in a job you hate to spend money you don't have to buy things you don't need to impress people you don't like. Yes, <laughs> and that's really the core here. Everything about what we've all, what we've talked about is really about just embracing the things that are important and your happiness and. You know, going back, if we can just finish going back to, you know, your miscarriage experience, the core things that you learnt and you shared with us, are they still as powerful now to you in your life? Uh, as in, And what are they? What, what are the things, the core things you got from almost dying that you do now that, that are important to you on your day-to-day basis? Just to remind people, they're still important and what are they? So one thing that I do every night is that when I go to sleep, I say what I'm grateful for. For whether that's a small thing or that's a big thing, just before I go to sleep, I say I'm grateful for uh, having a family. I'm grateful for enter anything you're grateful for. So I think taking that time to really think about what you're grateful for and recognize it and acknowledge it that that's definitely one thing that I put into practice all the time. I think the other major thing is I've really stopped caring about what other people think about me and what, what we their do opinions and our choices, are yeah. and our choices are. And that's really lifted a huge weight off my shoulders and I highly recommend that. Everyone, everyone should do that. <laughs> that, that just needs to be a given. It really should be. So, and that all falls into the making the most of each day because you don't actually know what's happening next. And I think that not only having a mum that has metastatic lung cancer has made me know that as a fact, but having my near-death experience, yeah. I, like only the other day we were saying, well, we don't know if mum's going to be around for Christmas. And that's true. We don't know. But we didn't know that I possibly could have died last year either. Exactly. And we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or the no. next day or the next day. So, so the point so, is then what? Do what? So then you should just actually enjoy now and Live stop worrying life. about next 30 years, the next 10 days, the next whatever. Yeah. We should enjoy what you're doing right now. And if you're not doing what you love and enjoy, then you should stop doing it because you're just wasting your time. Because in the end, life isn't about this kind of weird materialistic things. You can't. You, you, you realise when you're dying, they're not important. Well, we, we have this conversation only recently that if our house was to burn down, what would we be devastated that we'd lose? And we both looked at each other and we said nothing. The only thing that we would want out of our house is our children and our cat. <laughs> and exactly. that, that's it. The rest of it can all burn. That's completely fine. They're because just things. it means yeah. nothing. Like yeah. we have memories of things so we don't need photos. We have we have our feelings as a family so we don't need these objects yeah. to remind ourselves of those. And, which I know, think we would not have said that 12 no, months ago. But that's coming from someone who literally circled the drain of life. You know, and that's yeah. That's a real thing. And, you know, you've talked about, you know, you had the the feelings and the the thing, you, you, the, the warm feelings and the, the different – The spiritual feelings. Yeah, so, you know, it's it changes you. And, and that's that's really the lesson. You know, if there's if something you want to do, do it. Somebody you want to go, go. Someone you want to talk to, talk to them. If there's something that makes you happy, do that. Something that makes you unhappy, stop doing that. Yeah. This, is, this is really basic. But it's so important that people at least consider it, at least consider it. And I hope this conversation has, you know, 
has enlightened people and got people talking. And again, thank you so much for being open and honest and sharing your experiences. Is there anything else you wanted to say before I let you go? Oh, there's so many things I could talk about. Well, what? Seriously? <laughs> really? <laughs> like what? Well, there's just so much to talk about. There's, 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 I guess people might think or, or wonder why we share so openly these these experiences or these um, things happening in our lives, whether it's for us to get secondary gains or what it is. But it really is just what, what secondary gains. Well, <laughs> there are no secondary gains, right? That's true. That's secondary true. gains are happiness. Yeah, no absolutely. one's paying us to do no, this. No, this is true. This is true. There's no money coming. This is the point of our life, though, right? I, I do this because this makes me happy. Yeah, exactly. And, and talking to you openly makes us happy. This Definitely. is this is our relationship communication, but yeah. So so I guess um, well, you've really just summed it up. Is that this is what makes us happy and talking about things openly. If we can help somebody somewhere in the world talk openly, then that can be like a ripple effect. That that one person talks to somebody else who then feels that they can open up to their family, and then the next thing you know, you've got hundreds of people talking about miscarriage or about grief or loss or about pregnancy, or maybe there's someone that's been doing IVF that hasn't told their family about it because they're shameful about it and now they're going to talk about it because we've spoken openly about it or maybe there's someone that's going to say geez I'm so sick of having sex to try to get pregnant because this is like a chore and I no longer want to do this kind of thing because no one wants to talk about that but the more people talk openly about how they actually feel in these situations then the ripple just continues and grows and I think that's a really amazing thing. It absolutely is and it's it's so powerful and I hope Everyone, sorry, I'm still stuck on the fact that I just did the maths and it, sex has been a long time. Um, <laughs> anyway, back, back, back to what we're talking about, saying some more serious. <laughs> but no, no, you're right. I'm really thankful for, really this is all about you. I'm really thankful for you opening up and sharing, you know, personal your personal stories and your journey from the miscarriage to pregnancy and our, our little uh, rainbow baby. And once again, like you said, I'm absolutely certain people will find something in this that will resonate with them. And I really hope you do. That's our, that's our goal. Definitely. It continues to bubble along and please, you know, give this to someone if you think they should hear it. We really do appreciate your support. And Renee, thank you once again so much for coming on the show. I look forward to talking to you again soon. No worries. Thanks for having me. My guest was my incredible wife, Renee. Intensely Inquisitive. And thank you for listening to this episode of Intensely Inquisitive. My hope is that it's empowered you in some way, be that through learning new things or inspiring you to learn more or simply sparking interesting, deeper conversations. I really look forward to continuing this conversation with you, so feel free to like the Orion Kelly page on Facebook. And if there's a topic or question you'd like me to explore in an upcoming episode of Intensely Inquisitive, please message me or post it on the Orion Kelly Facebook page or you can contact me at my new website orionkelly.com.au that's o-r-i-o-n-k-e-l-l-y.com.au until next time keep asking questions thanks for listening to intensely inquisitive with orion kelly for more episodes and to stay up to date like the orion kelly page on facebook